you cannot say, you cannot discount that this is a 0% probability event that we will have a monetary system reset and Bitcoin will be chosen as one of the assets to back uh, credit creation. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by Alfonso Pecatiello. How are you doing, my friend? Hey, Michael. All good and uh, nice to be here. Thanks for yeah, inviting nice me. As well. um, what everyone doesn't know is uh, that's the second time we've had with that introduction. So I've actually had two bites of the apple uh, <laughs> at pronouncing Alfonso's name. Uh, so I think it was better this time. Um, but Alfonso, we got a ton of uh, ground that I want to cover here. Um, and you, this newsletter that you write, this macro theme newsletter is so great. I've got a list of questions, uh, you know, as long as this table. So uh, let's just get right into it. But before we kind of dive in, uh, can you just give us like a quick background on, on kind of you and what you're up to? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I write down this newsletter, which is called The Macro Compass. Mm -hmm. It's a free macro newsletter where you'll find about anything from gold to equities or bonds or what I think uh, money printing means and what it is and what it's not. Um, in my uh, professional life, I work at a bank, but just to state it out very clearly, I will not represent my employer in this conversation. All the opinions you will hear are just my own. And I'm done with the boring disclaimer. All right, perfect. Let's get right into it. Um, all right. So I love the way, uh, I mean, in this last newsletter that you wrote about gold, you had a really great distinction in between these two types of growth, one of which is sort of structural growth, and the other you describe as cyclical credit-driven growth. Um, and I want to kind of get your opinion on what are the differences here. So let's start with kind of structural growth. What are the different components of structural growth, and why are we having so much trouble finding that today? Yeah, sure. So um, it's actually I came out to this distinction uh, a few years ago because in my head I always try to separate what is a structural trend and what is a cyclical trend, mm -hmm. right? And so when I was looking at structural growth, I basically decided to go back and focus on what are the items that make our economy grow. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine it is a pie, Michael, and what you want to do is to make your pie, this this pie bigger and bigger over time, mm -hmm. right? And in order to do that, you basically have a couple of ways, not many, I have to say. And the first way is to have a, um, a labor supply that expands. So you have more people contributing to the economy in an active way. And the second way you have is to make these people more productive. So it's actually labor supply and total factor productivity. It's relatively simple at the end of the day. So then you can dive a little bit into it. You will have labor productivity, you will have capital productivity, and you will have the labor supply, right? So those are the three main elements. And then if you look at structural trends, you'll have to be able to extrapolate where this labor supply is going, where these productivity trends are going, etc., etc. And with that, you will basically take away all the noise. And for noise, I mean all the cycles. I imagine this being a very shallow trend line up, hopefully for humanity up, so where the labor supply expands and it remains productive. And then around this trend up, you will have some cycles. Yeah. That's basically how I think of it, right? So the structural uh, trends are driven by labor supply and total factor productivity, and there are some cycles around. We can talk about that too. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to bring this up later, but since you gave me that little graph uh, in the air there, your description of growth and what an economy is... Uh, how an economy works kind of remind me of uh, Ray Dalio's framework, right? So his three components are there's productivity, productive growth, which you just described. There's the short-term debt cycle, and then there's the long-term debt cycle, right? So I don't know how much you know about his framework, but how much does your idea of growth and what an economy is trying to be kind of line up with, with what he says? 
think what Ray says there, Dalio, is uh, pretty much spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, the short-term debt cycle and long-term debt cycle are a bit, uh, you know, two different phases of the same metal, which is credit expansion. Right. Credit expansion is the way that humanity has actually always used, even when credit expansion was backed by a hard asset. It can be gold, it can be silver, it can be, you know, generally precious metal. But even, um, I mean, when this was the case and when this is not the case anymore, so after 1971, uh, in our case, credit expansion has always been the way in which humanity tried to overlay cyclical growth on top of structural growth. Mm-hmm. So you can also think of, of this like this. I mean, if we only use the resources that we have today in our economy, we will grow at least at potential or, you know, according to a structural trend. If we want to grow more, then one of the ways to do that is by generating credit. So by, by basically expanding credit and credit creation is an extremely powerful tool because it literally creates resources for the private sector out of thin air. That's how our mon- monetary system works. You, you know, when a bank extends a loan, it, ge- it basically increases the asset side and the liability side of the banking balance sheet. If there is one aggregate banking balance sheet, it will expand on the asset side and on the liability side. And the private sector networks will actually increase because these loans are effectively new resources for the private sector to try to work with, right? And the same when governments actually print deficits. When they print deficit, the government is doing nothing else than effectively spending into the economy more than it ever intends to tax back. And when they do that, they effectively inject resource into the private sector. So these two ways are the easiest to explain, at least there is shadow banking too. Uh, But yeah, if you look at bank lending and government net spending, those are the way to expand credit. And every time we do expand credit, we have what I call a short-term sugar rush. You have a cyclical impulse, right? And yeah, you know it's it's pretty common. And together with that, you always have a cliff as well because you will have, or normally we tend to decelerate this credit creation at some point too. Right, exactly. And I guess I'll uh, you know move into another one of of Dollar's framework here to get your uh, to get your thoughts because there's this idea of I mean my interpretation of what's going on today, and you actually said this in your last newsletter as well is the basic problem here is that we are lacking structural growth and there is zero political, social, whatever you want to call it, will to just accept zero growth. So what ends up happening is central banks come in. In previous empires and stuff like that, there was debasement of the coinage, whatever it is, however you want to phrase it, whatever the institution is, you are altering the denominator. And it is a palliative effect of producing the illusion of nominal growth, right? So people kind of point at these angry, you know, what are these central banks doing? Don't they understand? I kind of think they're trying to hold it all together, right? And my interpretation of what's going on is that the first, you know, in order to get to that real structural growth again, they want lending. They want real genuine credit creation, right? So they're kind of pushing all the way down on that monetary lever, which is easing of interest rates. And it doesn't feel like that's working, right? So the next kind of avenue is fiscal policy and then potentially something that looks like MMT, right? So is is what I just kind of laid out, is that your interpretation or framework or do you have another way of thinking about it? So as humans, we won't all and we want it now right we can't we can't accept to you know leave on our potential growth or you know take the example of japan or germany if you look at structural growth in these economies so you literally look at the labor supply development it is shrinking year on year 
So the labor the German or the Japanese labor supply is not increasing year on year, it's shrinking. Mm. So you, your pie is effectively getting smaller. And therefore, either you have productivity gains that are able to more than offset that to generate any positive real growth, structurally speaking, or otherwise you're going to end up at zero growth or negative growth, structurally speaking. It is socially and politically unacceptable to have an economy that grows in real GDP terms zero or 0.5% a year. I mean, you can do that for a couple of years, but, you know, it's going to raise some eyebrows here and there, right? So, of course, you, you will have to find a way around it. And um, I find monetary policy um, interesting when compared to uh, bank lending behavior. So if you lower interest rates and you compress credit spreads, which is what we are effectively trying to engineer with monetary policy, right? Mm -hmm. And the side effects of monetary policy too. When you do that, you effectively took the two components of a bank loan yield and you compress them as much as you can. I mean, think of the, the yield on a bank loan. That's the result of two things. It's the result of a risk-free rate mm -hmm. and a credit spread on top, which the borrower you know, holds with, because it's not the risk-free uh, right. borrower at the end of the day, right? So the risk-free interest rate has been compressed as much as possible. Uh, well, as a, as, a, as a result of this very poor structural growth and monetary policy on top. And then you have the credit spread component, which has also been compressed very much because, you know, another objective of monetary policy is to make sure that volatility out there is not that much and people feel comfortable in allocating their resources down the credit spectrum, down the duration spectrum, right? So a bank is effectively lending money to borrowers which are less and less credit worthy because in the meantime, we have increased leverage. The earning capacity of these borrowers is, you know, going down together with poor structural growth. So these borrowers are not that credit worthy anymore. And the loan yield that the bank is coming, uh, you know, is getting out of the loan is very poor as the result of credit spread compression and risk-free rate compression. Banks are not going to lend that much. I mean, look at American banks too. I mean, if I take the, the most... Um, you know, potentially the strongest growing uh, developed market economy, the United States of America, mm. and you look at the loan book year-on-year -year growth of JP Morgan, Bank of America, it's public data, you can look into it. It's flat like a pancake. They're not going anywhere. And we're talking America. Now look at Japanese banks. During quantitative easing and the first iterations of quantitative easing, I put a chart on my macro compass that shows the monetary base growth, so that's basically the amount of reserves that are printed by Bank of Japan and exchanged for uh, JGBs. That has grown substantially. Of course, it reduces interest rates as well. And it also compresses credit spreads via second round effects. And look at bank loans in the same period between 2000 or 1999 and 2006. Bank loans dropped by 25% on aggregate. Dropped by 25% on aggregate. So, you know, the incentive scheme there for commercial banks to lend uh, is smaller and smaller, also because regulation has not gotten any easier on them. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you just don't lend out, you don't expand credit, and therefore that channel is not working much. And at some point, you will have the other credit creator that goes into the game, which is the government. And the government will say, well, so the private sector is actually not that willing to borrow anymore. Mm -hmm. Private debt to GDP is 180% in Europe and 165% in America. And private debt, Michael, in order to repay private debt, cannot print your way out of it. You need cash flows. If you're a household with a mortgage or you are a corporate with a loan, um, you need cash flows to repay. 
So if the private sector is already over leveraged and doesn't see investment opportunities, it's not going to borrow. Banks are not going to lend either because of what we just said. And so the government said, you know what, I need to step in. And that's actually what's going on. Mm. So you just kind of answered, remember I told you there was a question, I heard, I heard you say something and I didn't understand it. And you were talking about the Japanese private sector and how they were effectively trying to deleverage mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a fact. I mean, you draw kind of this important distinction in between private sector and public sector debt. Um, so am I understanding correctly that actually it almost looks like the public sector debt or government debt is almost being so irresponsible that private corporations saying, well, hey, actually, we kind of want to deleverage pay some of this debt down, and that's actually a big impediment to these companies growing. Is that a fair way of looking at it? So the f- pretty much. Um, I would say that uh, people are always focusing a lot on government debt mm-hmm. and not paying enough attention on private debt. Mm-hmm. And if Japan is, is, is a poster child for this. So the Japanese government has spent about 5 to 6% of GDP deficit-wise, net deficit-wise, you know, for a while, for a long while. Uh, you know, some years it was 3%, some years it was 6%, but it has been on a constant deficit, you know, right. trajectory. That's the government side. Now you look at the private sector, and the private sector has been deleveraging on the other side. So that tells you something. That means that the private sector is not interested in taking additional credit. Because, again, as a private sector, you need proper cash flows in order to service your debt. Mm-hmm. You are a, a household balance sheet is very different from a government balance sheet. Household balance sheet can't just, you know, produce new equity, uh, new capital out of thin air. It actually needs earnings, cash flows to function and to service its debt. So when the private sector is telling you we are impaired, we see very low growth, very low earnings, our wage growth is pretty stagnant, it matches inflation and that's it. Uh, we recognize that the investment opportunities out there are really not that much. We'd rather save and or destroy existing credit. Then the public sector printing deficits, well, can it, in that case, at best offset the private sector deleveraging. And deleveraging is basically a way to destroy existing credit. Mm. You pay back your loan and you have the exact uh, reverse exercise when a bank extends loan it increases assets and liabilities and it produces net worth for the private sector when the private sector feels it's too much leverage it actually does the opposite so it destroys both assets and liabilities hmm. and it just just comes back to a more balanced situation where they have less leverage and then the government tries to go in and says no no, no guys here is a deficit private sector here is a deficit here you go more resources the private sector is like sorry but i, I don't, don't need to do more. yeah yeah. Do you also connect? I mean, a lot of people have made that connection also just with lowering interest rates or essentially lowering the, the hurdle rate for investment as well. Um, and that tends to lead. I mean, do you agree that that also tends to lead to like stock buybacks as well? And there's a different type of risk taking, right? There's kind of productive risk taking, which is what the government clearly hopes uh, the private sector is going to do versus some form of like financial engineering. Right. Um, do you do you kind of draw the connection between the low interest rates and like stock buybacks and that type of thing? Uh, in general, uh, I mean, I heard people say that lower interest rates are irrelevant for asset valuations and monetary policy is irrelevant for that. I strongly disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Monetary policy, um, especially when it's about quantitative easing uh, and, and you know, let's talk about quantitative easing first and then interest rates. Those are two different monetary policy instruments. So quantitative easing basically expands the balance sheet of a central bank Mm -hmm. by creating reserves on the liability side of a central bank out of thin air 
and then taking these reserves and exchanging bonds for reserves. So it takes away bonds from the private sector. It injects reserves into the banking system. That's, that's what QE is done in terms of uh, mechanics, let's say. But what it does effectively is it um, literally changes the composition of the asset side of the private sector, forcefully so, from bonds to zero-duration assets that mm -hmm. are reserves. Those reserves are stuck into the banking system and they can be used to you know, settle interbank payments. Uh, reserves can be also used to purchase bonds under certain circumstances, but they sit and they're stuck on the asset side of the banking system. But the banking system or any other private sector owner has been literally taken away bonds. So if, the, if before they were owning bonds for regulatory reasons, take a pension fund, take an insurance company, they have to own bonds for regulatory reasons, or they were owning bonds to hedge some risks. Some of these companies own bonds, take a pension fund, because they have very long liabilities in terms of duration, right? They need to pay pension premiums in 40 years, 50 years, 60 years from now to people, right? So what they do is they buy bonds on the asset side. Now comes the quantitative easing, and via the dealers, the central bank bids, bids up the bond prices to a certain level where the private sector will say, well, Okay, uh, you can have them if you really want, right? But but the point is that a pension fund needs bonds. Also, regulatory speaking, I mean, you have entities that all of a sudden have bank deposits. If you're a pension fund or an asset manager, or if you're a bank, you have now a bank reserve instead of a bond that you used to have before. So obviously, because you need to replenish your bond position, you will, in a, in a sort of a vicious circle, go bidding up again for these bonds at some point, mm. right? And, and if, once you see that the carry left in these bonds is about nothing, you will try and say, okay, what are the other assets that regulatory-wise make sense for me and that are treated decently from a capital perspective and liquidity perspective and regulatory perspective, I will buy those. And those will be corporate bonds first, high-graded, then there will be triple B corporate bonds, then you will move to junk yields, and you, move, you will move to about anything you can have and you are allowed to have as an institutional investor. Mm. So that's how QE works. And, you know, it takes some time, but in the end, it forces everybody to be in the same trade, to go down the credit spectrum. And, you know, when you have, uh, today I was checking, 10-year triple B corporate bond yields in America, net of inflation today. So the real interest rate on a 10-year triple B corporate bond minus the 10-year inflation break-even, that's 0%. So a 10-year triple B corporate bond is yielding about 2.3% as we speak, mm. just an average benchmark triple B corporate bond in America. And the 10-year inflation break-even is about 2.3% too. So if the inflation break-even is correct and you want to make that assumption and CPI will print about 2% for the next 10 years, by taking credit risk for 10 years in a triple B corporate, you will earn 0% real interest rate. Mm. Is that capital misallocation? you might argue so, or does it push people in the same boat to take the same trade on because they don't have any, any other alternative? Yes, you might argue so. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm not sure there's any program that is more widely misunderstood than quantitative easing. Um, you know, I've heard you talk about this in past interviews and I'd, I would offer an explanation. The, the federal reserve, which I think you would argue as well, there's this, uh, this idea that they're omnipotent, right? Don't fight the Fed, they have control, they print all this money. Uh, in a lot of ways, that's a very false narrative, right? What they're printing is reserves that is not empty, that's not real money. Um, 
But the Fed is so used to kind of managing the expectations channel, right? That's such an important channel for them to actually uh, affect markets that they are, in my opinion, actively pushing this QE equals money printing narrative, right? I forget who it was. One of the Fed, Federal Reserve governors, you know, went on 60 Minutes and said, yeah, we are printing money. We just move, you know, this decimal into that thing. And it seems like they want to give the impression that we are flooding markets with liquidity. Uh, we're printing a lot of money. Nobody should worry. Uh, and I wonder if that's why it's so misunderstood, because for me, it, it almost looks like a liquidity negative move because you're actually swapping treasuries out, which are an important form of collateral in general. So in a lot of ways, it almost looks like it's not designed to do what the Fed is explicitly saying that it is doing. So I think you're right. And you touch on a great point by saying that if you look into the moneyness of the different forms of money that we have, mm -hmm. treasuries might be more money, more money, mm -hmm. if you wish, than reserves. You might argue so. Yeah. Reserves are money only, literally only for the banking system. That's it. It's a token that can be exchanged from bank A to bank B. And the total amount of reserves, bank can't influence that. Only the Federal Reserve can. Yeah. So, I mean, it's literally money that can be used only within banks. Treasury is a form of money um, that, again, cannot be directly spent uh, into the real economy. And it's not that simple. But Treasury itself is more money than bank reserves to the point that you have to imagine and think big picture. Most of the large institutional investors do not have access to the Federal Reserve. They cannot park money risk-free at the Federal Reserve overnight. Mm -hmm. They cannot do that. They don't have an account at the Fed. If they don't have an account at the Fed, they will be looking for a place where to park their overnight liquidity, mm -hmm. right? And the obvious alternative is to park it into commercial banks. But your deposit at a commercial bank is only guaranteed up to, I think, $250,000. That's more or less what it right. is. So any any amount exceeding that takes overnight credit risk on the banking system, or at least on the single bank where you're choosing to place your money on, right? So if you have to choose between that and you know a reverse repo where your collateral is the treasury, or literally buying short-term bills or buying treasuries, then I would argue that you know that is quite a decent form of or token where to place your, your your overnight liquidity and with quantitative easing the federal reserve is actually of course reducing the amount of freely available collateral to the system and is injecting on the other hand excess reserves and that is also the reason why uh, the reverse repo facility is hitting one trillion overnight and and you know banks are rolling over this facility because there is at the moment quite an imbalance between the amount of collateral available to the system which is drained by the federal reserve qe on a daily basis and the amount of excess reserves which are pushed through the system by the quantitative uh, easing on a daily basis too. And then at some point where this reserve repo facility starts to make sense for, especially for, uh, you know, some of the players out there, they will use it. Howdy guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrix Support. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can. Well, Matrix Support makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about. But they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step, you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. 
Talk about a no-brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I am telling you, I am the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I, how much do you think, because one of, one of the things that I think about when I'm looking at the, the reverse repo facility, which is up to a trillion dollars or something like that, is actually money market funds in general. Um, and, that, you know, that was a big worry during 2008, 2009. There was this worry that the buck is going to be broken. And my, you know, very simple uh, understanding of, of why the reverse repo facility is so popular right now is because the Fed is very worried um, that funds are going to pour into those, uh, you know, very short duration uh, type funds and actually turn short term rates negative. I mean, so how much are, are kind of uh, money market funds kind of playing into what kind of central banks are thinking? No, I mean, it, it's, it's very important. At the end of the day, if you think of reserve repo, it's actually a floor to where short term yields can go. That's the objective the Fed has with this facility. It serves as a floor as it pays an interest that is higher, let's say, or very close to the Fed funds rate. It incentivizes also entities with no access to the Fed funds rate to effectively use this facility. If this facility would be unavailable, then you would have money market funds that would be chasing for a way to, you know, um, take these bank deposits they have and overnight turn them into something that is of higher collateral, higher quality. Mm. I mean, if I'm a money market fund, then, or I'm a, whatever institutional player that has no access to the Federal Reserve, as we discussed before, Michael, I have to park my overnight liquidity somewhere. Right. My obvious choice is a commercial bank, but above 250K, I am basically an unsecured depositor at a commercial bank for that amount. So I'm taking literally overnight credit risk. So I might want to look for something else, right? And my obvious choice at that point would be shortened bills. Mm -hmm. But if everybody's going there, then do you see where shortened bills are going? Probably to yield pretty negative. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve will then be challenged on the monetary policy because monetary policy starts at the very short end, starts in the plumbing, in the repo, at the very short end, and you need to have control of that. Mm -hmm. And that is the only reason why this reserve repo facility actually exists, in my opinion. Yeah. So zooming out for one second, you talked about Japan before. Um, there are kind of two schools of thought around this, right? Which is one is that Japan is very different from the United States, right? We're a much larger economy. Um, we, uh, you know, we have the reserve currency. It's not appropriate to look at Japan and say, hey, we're going to follow in, in their footsteps, right? Even though we're enacting similar monetary policy. On the other hand, it does feel in many ways like Japan is just 15 years or something ahead down the line. And a lot of what we are starting to see crop up in our economy, Japan is just much further along. How appropriate is it, do you think, to look at the example of what Japan has done and apply that to the United States? It's a great question because uh, there are similar similarities and uh, much, you know, dissimilarities, if this is an English word, uh, differences. So the similarities. Um, if I plot on a chart 10-year um, real interest rate, so this is nominal interest rates minus uh, expected inflation for the next 10 years, of Japan, Europe, and the US, which I have done, I think it's published on Twitter somewhere mm -hmm. on my account, you will see that 10-year um, real interest rates in Japan have been dropping the whole time, 10-year European interest rates have been dropping the whole time and mimicking Japan one-on-one -on -one with an eight-year lag, 10-year interest rates, real interest rates in the US have dropped exactly the same, mimicking exactly Japan with a 15-year lag. Okay, so 
Why does that happen? It happens because we are all doing the same. We are overlaying credit in order to make sure we grow more short term than what our structural growth will be. When we do that, we also need to push real interest rates as low as possible, especially because if the private sector is over leveraged, they need you know, to refinance that at affordable rates compared to their earnings. And if you reduce real interest rates, then it will be relatively simple to refinance these earnings, uh, these, these, um, these liabilities for the private sector. So Japan does the same, Europe does the same, US does the same. So that trend is pretty much the same. The trend about demographics and productivity is similar, although, well, Japan is quite a harsh case. Europe, uh, in terms of labor supply, well, resembles Japan very closely. The US a bit less so, but if you look at um, the labor supply growth in the US, year on year, that you have that you will have in this decade or in future decades and that you had in the 70s or in the 80s is nowhere comparable. So the trend is the same, but thanks to net immigration and to some birth rate, which is a bit more decent than Germany or Japan, the US is doing slightly better. So mm -hmm. mind you, the trend is still the same, but US is doing mildly better and mildly better also in terms of uh, productivity compared to Japan or to some European countries. But again, also productivity today in the US is not nowhere near what it was in the 70s or the 80s. So again, we're looking at similar trends, similar uh, trends for the drivers of structural growth, although not to the same extent, but the trend is very similar. And we are looking at, uh, well, doing the same thing, overlaying credit in order to grow more cyclically and lowering real interest rates. So also there we are going in a similar direction, right? You might want to argue the private sector in the US is more uh, healthy than the private sector in Japan. And I might want to agree about that, but there are some similarities from that perspective. Where do we really differ? Well, we started talking about the private sector. Uh, the reserve currency, as you discussed, is a pretty relevant one. I mean, the United States is in a fantastic position because how the system is built today, there are uh, trillions and trillions of liabilities that are denominated in dollars and that are issued by entities that have no US jurisdiction, mm. no access, no direct access to these dollars, especially when they need them the most. The access they get to the dollars is via trade flows, is via, you know, mostly trade flows, I would say, but if you're a corporate via earnings, you might have in America, you know, you get access via GDP growth, basically mm. organic GDP growth and trade flows to these dollars. When this stops, you have a problem. And the only suppliers of these US dollars is literally, or can be literally America. And you know, it's, it's the US government and it's the Federal Reserve via swap lines, etc., etc. right? And it's the US consumers. But if the economy stops, then you can't count on the consumers. You can't count on the US banks, they won't lend money. So then you have to count on the authorities, the mm. government and the Federal Reserve via swap lines. So because of that, the United States is in a great position and you can see the Afghan, uh, the, Af uh, the Afghanistan situation now is also very funny, right? You have these guys that just said, okay, well, let's look at our reserve assets at the Central Bank of Afghanistan. They look at 10 billion in assets or 9 billion or whatever they thought they had, Michael. And then they say, um, so let's have a look at this. What do I have? I have three, four billion in treasuries. I would like to have that, please. And the US is like, Mm, nope, those are frozen, sorry. And these guys are like, but what do you mean? Yes, what we mean is that your reserve assets are digits in a digital ledger, and those are assets for you, and those are liability for the US, and 
because their liabilities for the US are supposed to be due from the US, and you are just going to say, no, sorry. And, you know, so the US is in a great position. Japan is not in that position. Um, and that is a material difference. The private sector in, in the US is more productive than the private, private sector in Japan. The levels of leverage, though, and the trends in, uh, in labor supply and in productivity and in real interest rates are unfortunately, uh, I think, pretty compelling, though. Mm. So I want you to stretch your imagination with me for a second. I want you to imagine that I am in a seat of an asset allocator, okay? And I've got to make decisions um, about where I'm going to allocate you know, my portfolio over the course of the next, say, 10 years. If you rewind and look at the last 10 years, I think you had actually a, like a matrix of different returns of, of different um, kind of assets in your last newsletter. But like obviously what did really well was like uh, large cap uh, tech, basically, uh, in the U.S., right? So the NASDAQ basically did the best. And it was like, uh, you know, uh, large cap stocks was like right behind that. And then you kind of went down this waterfall. And the reason why it did well is the growth was kind of nowhere to be found. There was a big premium to be paid, toward, uh, paid towards those like high growth techie sort of names. Um, and that's what you kind of needed to know. And uh, Kathy Wood has done extremely well, basically, on solely that basis. Um, if I'm sitting in a seat as an allocator, what are the things that I need to understand going into the next 10 years? How do you start to put together a framework? Like what are the most important factors that I need to be aware of when I'm starting to make long-term allocation decisions? What a question. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Uh, I would say you need to be aware of how our monetary system works, mm -hmm. first of all. So you have to imagine that the base case, so the way you should think in general is uh, we don't know what's going to happen beforehand. We might only make a probabilistic assessment of future scenarios, and then we have to attach a certain probability to each of those, right? And the base, you know, in order to understand that, you need to think, okay, first of all, the monetary system works in a way that we expand credit. We will keep on doing that because it's, you know, it's just what we do the whole time. And in order to expand credit and to, to, to basically sustain this leverage, we need either earnings, strong earnings, structural earnings, or otherwise uh, we need lower real interest rates because otherwise, you know, it just doesn't square, especially for the private sector. Okay, cool. So this is the this is the base, right? You start from there, and you're like, okay, in this uh, in this environment, uh, what do I really think? What is my base case? Is my base case that earnings generation capacity and GDP growth will uh, reflourish, or is it the case that we're gonna remain in relatively poor structural trends, and therefore we need the lever of lower real interest rates, and we will have these structural trends effectively continue untouched. Right. This is this is the main question you need to answer, I would say. Once you answer that question, then uh, you can start thinking about how you allocate your resources. Mm -hmm. And my answer to that question would be my base case is that so base case meaning 50 percent plus probability is that uh, no, there will be not enough structural earning capacity to basically be able to sustain this 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 quantity of leverage such that, you know, if the economy is growing organically at a very good level, then we might want to change a little bit paradigm here, right? So we don't need these low real interest rates. We can live with higher real interest rates. We will have earning capacity that moves to the cyclical sectors, maybe. Is that my base case? No, my base case is the opposite. My base case is that we will continue to kick the can down the road. 
we will have lower and lower structural GDP growth, which will be offset by attempts at higher and higher credit creation. And in order to sustain that, we will need lower and lower real interest rates. So if that is your base case, then, well, you, you are supposed to look at the winners of the last decade, the winners of the last 20 years, right? And, you know, that is one way to answer it. And to answer this question, you also need to think about um, the role of fiscal that is very relevant, but also th what the private sector will do out of this, or, or what is the gen earning generation capacity of this private sector? Because everybody forgets to look at that, mm. but you, it's very important too. So I would answer to this question by saying, uh, I wouldn't drop the winners of the last 10 to 20 years. I don't think the trends are changing. I think if there is one breakup moment where this um, relatively linear scenario drawing becomes convex and risks of breaking up is a moment where you need hedges against the reset of the monetary system. So in my last latest article about gold, I discussed as gold being one potential item for that. Mm. Because once, you know, we might want to realize that expanding credit and being backed by no hard asset um, is perhaps not the most viable option for, for humanity in our monetary system. And if you think of a system where you want a hard asset to back your credit creation, then I think gold pretty much stands out. It's already owned by authorities in their balance sheet. It doesn't need a digital revolution to to work. And I think it's also, people tend to go back to what it sort of worked in the past and gold, let's say, worked in the past too. So then this one needs to have an, a place in your portfolio, but you know, equity always should have a place in your portfolio, I guess, because you're looking to get exposure to earnings, to growth. If your base case is not that the world falls apart tomorrow, which is not the case for me, you need exposure to, to earnings and this exposure gets from equities and the sector you choose depend on your view about structural earning capacity or not. Yeah. So I've got a couple questions for you there. So gold, I completely understand. Uh, you just said the words digital revolution, so you're probably going to guess what I'm going to ask you now. Do you Would you put uh, Bitcoin in that same bucket as gold? So, okay, again, I go because I don't have a crystal ball, Michael, mm -hmm. I need to be humble about whatever comes in markets. And the crypto space is pretty much uprising, so I need to pay attention to what's going on. Right? Mm -hmm. And there, there is a, uh, again, a probabilistic assessment we need to make. So if I need an asset that is um, correlated to negative real interest rates uh, and is a high beta play to that, I don't need Bitcoin. I can just lever up on the Nasdaq and that will do the trick, basically. Mm. So from that perspective, I'm not that much interested into the asset itself, right? It's, if, you, if you consider the crypto space as a highly levered beta play into lower real interest rates, I think there are better options out there, or at least I don't think the risk reward, uh, especially if you count stomach drawdowns, is great. If you think of the crypto space, especially, I, I will talk about Bitcoin just to uh, mm -hmm. just to be just to make it easier. If you think of Bitcoin as a, a limited supply asset, scarce supply asset, let's say that can back credit creation, so it can coexist with with the fiat currencies, but it will serve as the unit of reference. A bit like a gold standard, you can talk about the Bitcoin standard. So what is the probability that that happens? I need to take a probability of a monetary system reset, which I'm going to say it's 5%, just mm -hmm. to say a number, okay? 
And then I'm going to take that 5% and I'm going to say, what is the likelihood that gold is chosen as the hard asset to back our credit creation? What is the probability that Bitcoin will be chosen as the asset to back our credit creation? And what is the investor preference or the first reaction investors will have? The answer to that question is that I have to assign the largest weight to gold. Mm. Right? So, but Bitcoin still has to have a weight in there. You cannot say, you cannot discount it is a 0% probability event that we will have a monetary system reset and Bitcoin will be chosen as one of the assets to back uh, credit creation. So if your answer is more than zero, then your allocation of Bitcoin in your portfolio might want to be more than 0%. Yes, in principle, yes, if you follow this rationale. On the other hand, the discussion about Bitcoin is very tricky because it's extremely polarized. It's naysayers against maximalists. It's people that say you should denominate your wealth completely in Bitcoin and people saying, this is a Ponzi scheme. And in general, I don't like these very polarized discussions. I think, I think if you believe in the thesis I just proposed, or at least that Bitcoin might be used as a hard asset from, or considered a hard asset from some people that could back credit creation, then it might want to warrant a percentage in your portfolio. If you think that probability is 0%, then you own 0% in your portfolio. Hmm. So I think it's really interesting to hear you say that. I So I would actually characterize myself as someone who has a deep stake in crypto, but I would not call myself a Bitcoin maximalist. And I actually, I'm, I really don't like how a lot of the discussion unfolds, specifically on places like Twitter. I actually, you know, like, I mean, it's just, yeah, I hate it. Um, I, I mean, I understand why it is like that. Frankly, I look at the gold community, I'm like, I really understand why it's like that. Like the parallels between those two communities are, uh, you know, it's becoming harder for me to ignore day by day. Um, I will say, I think the reason I was so excited to talk to you, one of the reasons, you put growth at the center of everything. I also put growth at the center of everything. If you talk to people who are supporters of gold, gold maximalists, Bitcoin maximalists, they say, this is it. I found my thing. Uh, it's sound money. The problem is all of this credit creation, yada, yada. I'm going to like, it's kind of an isolationist almost idea. It's like, I'm going to take my gold or my Bitcoin, sit on my island and watch the rest of the world burn. And I just don't particularly subscribe to that philosophy. I just don't think that's helpful. And ultimately, what I would be looking for and what I think has manifested itself throughout multiple you know, periods of restructuring in history is you need real growth. So I think there's another part of the crypto industry, actually, which is very focused on that growth kind of idea and some of the stuff that you're starting to see in decentralized finance and the idea of like open networks where financial transactions can be conducted is an exciting growth area. So I would gently, I'm not going to harp on it too much, but I would gently suggest uh, taking a look there because there's some pretty interesting stuff going on, real growth going on. Well, the, the only the only thing I want to say to that, Michael, is that I, uh, I ignore in the Socrates sense of things and I know that I am ignorant about this. I mean, I, I am very new to the asset class and you need to study a lot. It's very easy to sit on a chair and say, wow, this is a Ponzi scheme. Mm. I think it deserves at least some attention in terms of uh, analysis. And I have not done uh, that much deep work on it. So I have no problem in admitting that I don't know much about it. I've looked at the whole asset class as a whole, as in a macro idea but I'm not that much into the details and uh, I will take your suggestions and have a better look at it. Okay, cool. That's all I can ask. Um, all right, but I, I do want to actually ask you about Bitcoin and gold in general because you wrote about it in very new, gold, at least in a very nuanced way in your last newsletter. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if you talk to supporters of gold, they'd say, this is something I'm going to own for my entire life. But even hearing you describe it, and a couple episodes ago, we had a guy named Urien Timmerer. He's director of global macro research at Fidelity. And he had this great chart, which just really made me think. And he looked at returns of different asset classes going all the way back to like 1700s. Guy really likes history. And, you know, you look at equities is like way on top, right? And gold is like kind of down here. But if you look at um, kind of periods in time, there are spikes, right? And those uh, those spikes in gold tend to align with periods of, you know, monetary debasement, basically. So in that sense, you could almost, I look at gold, and I'm starting to look at Bitcoin more as a trade than an investment, right? It doesn't compound returns. But during certain periods of time, when you have sustained negative, uh, you know, real rates, all that kind of stuff, it should outperform basically everything else. Is that an appropriate way of thinking about it? Do you think about it that way too? Or I don't know? Uh, Okay, so I think gold might have a place in a portfolio as i wrote in my uh, latest article at the macro compass for a couple of reasons because i think it is a good asset to have in the structural trends we are having so if you lower real interest rates continuously you will have investors that looking at gold uh in a much easier way because the zero percent real carry it's not much of a problem i mean elsewhere you don't get that much of real interest rate carry anyway we talked about corporate bonds before mm-hmm. 10-year corporate bonds in america get you with zero percent real interest rate so at that point gold starts to look like pretty good yeah, yeah you, you see what i want to say right so you get that effect of uh marginal flows flowing to the, to the asset class because real interest rates elsewhere are dropping right so that's one and the other one is that I think it serves as a hedge, as a decent hedge against uh, the, the very low likelihood, I should say, of a large monetary uh, system reset. Mm-hmm. And you call it debasement. I am more interested in the properties gold might have when people assign literally a higher probability that this monetary system is, is sort of gone or needs to be reformed. And in that case, I think gold actually gets a pretty good bid. It's a, it's a convex payoff. It's like an option. It's like a call option yep. on, this, on this episode, basically. Um, do I look at this as a trade? So the issue is if I'm investing my, my savings for the very long term, I barely look at anything like a trade. But if I, if I wear a different hat, uh, then yes, it's, it's, a, it's a great tradable asset. I mean, it has um, decent uh, volatility. Mm-hmm. So if you size your positions according to your volatility, yes, of course, you can use this as a tactical asset as you can use anything else to mm-hmm. that point. And I discussed about the volatility of crypto assets, but you can size your position and, and take tactical positions on crypto too, as long as you know you have to stop out if you're wrong and that you're, you will be stomaching pretty large annualized volatility if you, if you take a tactical position in, in Bitcoin, for example. You can take tactical positions in gold too. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about equities in general. Like, let's say that your earlier assumption is correct and we're moving towards an environment of sustained negative real rates. Um, let's like approach different buckets of equities. I was actually pretty surprised to see in your, in your matrix that emerging market equities uh, did extremely well uh, in those in sort of at least inflation type scenarios. Um, I've got a couple different scenarios kind of playing out in my mind. Like even if you just look at kind of value stocks versus growth stocks or kind of higher risk stocks. On the one hand, I kind of look at this dynamic of the last 10 years and say, hey, when there's no growth that's going on, people are willing to pay a huge premium for that growth, right? Um, But on the other hand, so in that sort of scenario, these growthy stocks should continue to do really well. On the other hand, I can see a scenario of inflation where people are like, whoa, that dollar in 10 years, probably not going to be worth very much. And that essentially brings the discount rate up and those value stocks should actually do better because you want the dollar's 
from the cash flows in your hand that much sooner. So I've got these two ideas playing back and forth in my head, and I'm like, which bucket within equity should do well? Um, you know, in an in an environment of financial oppression, how do you think about answering that question? Ooh, okay, that's a nice one. So if I look at financial repression, that generally that definition is generally associated with uh, nominal interest rates being on risk-free assets being even on credit being very close or below the prevailing inflation rate. Mm-hmm. And how that, that, does that work is that you're basically penalizing the savers and you are incentivizing the borrowers. So right. you're, you know, you're making it easy on the borrowers, you're making it difficult on the savers, right? So if I, if I own money on a bank account and in treasuries at 1% yield and then inflation is 2%, I actually am losing purchasing power. But the, the government is actually uh, uh, inflating away in real terms their debt, right? So that's what's known to be financial repression, especially if it lasts for a decade, right? right? Okay. So we're talking about negative real interest rates, risk-free real interest rates and corporate spreads being very tied to. So basically the situation we are in today for the next decade, let's assume it uh, being a status quo stationary situation. So where would I allocate my money or where would I look, how would I look at growth stocks or value stocks? So growth stocks are, um, you, you, Effectively, you should the discount rate is very important because it it's, it basically tells you how much am I willing to pay today for a reliable stream of cash flows over the next ten or twenty years, mm-hmm. right? But that that should work theoretically both for growth stocks and value stocks, right? Mm-hmm. Now the question is, what is reliable and what is valuable? Mm-hmm. So if I'm in an environment, as I pointed out before, Michael, of no growth, right. how can I assume that? Um, I don't know, an energy company or high or an industrial uh, company is able to produce a reliable stream of cash flows over the next years. Mm-hmm. I have to assign the probability that that stream of cash flows will come down, actually. So it's a matter of earnings being priced to be lower. The other thing is how much today are big tech, large cap companies able to influence and have pricing power? compared to the small cap companies. Mm. If I'm a small cap and I look at my earnings and inflation is going up, can I pass through all that earnings to my consumers? So can I have real inflation protected cash flows that are constant, you know, reliable for my investors over the future such that they would pay up for those, right? That is the question. The answer I think is not that much, especially because you don't, you don't have economies of scale, uh, you know, and, and you don't have so many advantages the tech companies have. They, you might want to argue, have a better pricing power than the small cap companies. And in, in an environment of low growth, even if inflation picks up, they have still reliable earnings going forward. Mm. Right? So you have a lower discount rate that for them works very well because they're basically long duration proxy for cash flows. That's what they are. right? And then they have some pricing power so they can pass on some inflation to the consumers may be better. We're talking relative basis. Right, right? Right. I'm not necessarily saying that in a high inflation environment, Nasdaq has to trade at 30,000. I'm not saying that. I'm saying on a relative basis, I would still move myself to tech rather than value. But if we move again and we say, okay, this is an inflationary environment, but real growth is also picking up. So nominal GDP, to make it simple, is going through the roof. We're talking about six, 7% nominal GDP sustained over the years. Well, in that environment, you might want to have emerging market equities and value stocks actually outperforming tech because, as we said before, the earnings themselves can be uh, priced to be, with a higher probability, reliable and very strong 
in cyclicals over the years and therefore people would be happy to buy those. So it's all about uh, pricing power, how reliable are your earnings and um, yeah, basically how much growth are you going to have together with inflation. All right, here's my, I, you've already been really generous with your time and, and here's um, the last question that I want to end with. Um, so you said, you said just now and you said in your note as well, you see a very low probability of a monetary reset or something happening here. And I don't know if you've ever read this book, Market Wizards, um, but yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. So that was written in 1989 or whatever it was, and they're interviewing all these people. And you know, it was really interesting for me to read because they're talking about a lot of the same things that we're talking about today. Oh, the deficit spending. You know, there's going to be some big reset, and this can't keep going on forever. And here we are, you know, uh, uh, 30 years later, and it's all still going on. So on the one hand, I'm kind of listening, being like, okay, that makes a lot of sense, right? It, we can probably keep this going for some period of time. On the other hand, what happened over the course of the last 18 months is pretty unprecedented, right? I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars got printed. And at some point, doesn't gravity have to take effect? You know, a tree can't grow into the sky forever, whatever that expression is. So I guess, how do you see, not that nothing ever really ends, but what do you see the end game being here? Do you think we are going to end up inflating away the debt? Do you think we'll find growth? Do we default? Are those the only options? Like... What do you think about the future kind of going forward? Uh, wow, you're asking very easy questions, I should say. <laughs> uh, not, not really. Um, so um, the answer to that question is that I don't know, but I can try to figure out a couple of scenarios. And there are basically two, I would say, not mm. that many out there. Um, so we are ourselves in a situation where we live in this wealth illusion that is driven by capital gains, either paper capital gains or realized capital gains that are the result of lower and lower real interest rates that are used as a discount factor for the very same assets that are there to be owned, right? And that's because we don't have growth and we create credit, we overlay this, this credit, this credit, the other side of this credit is debt, etc., etc. The whole story that we have just said, and then we lower real interest rates and you know, we have this wealth illusion effect. Your house price is going up. Your uh, uh, retirement portfolio is going up, etc., etc. The problem with that is that the next generations that mm -hmm. will come will find it increasingly difficult to afford something unless real interest rates are even lower. So you take an example, house prices, and you say, oh, house prices are going up. And then you effectively, if you think of house prices uh, as a stream as an, an annuity. So if you, if you imagine your house being financed, Michael, with a 100% LTV mortgage, mm -hmm. so fully financed by a mortgage, and then you, you think this is an annuity mortgage, right? And then you discount effectively your cash flows and you say, I'm going to pay uh, for a million house at 5%, at I'm going to pay, I don't know, 5,000 a month, right? Now take that 5% and move it to 1%, then move it to 0%. And then he would say that at some point, right. this becomes less and less that you need to pay on a, on, on a monthly basis. And you, you feel that you can afford a million dollar house. Okay, so that's, that's the feeling here. And the guy who bought it before basically got rich, wealth illusion effect again, because real interest rates have been lower. He literally got rich. But the problem is that the next guy who will come in will need real interest rates to be lower and lower for this to go ahead. Okay, so we are in this situation, right? There are two ways to get out of it. Either we go for upfront wealth destruction and we say, so Alfonso has bought a place, um, he's up 50% uh, on it, tomorrow he's down 70% on it, which means we literally allow for the next crisis to go through the full course, to reduce the leverage out there, to destroy asset prices, 
and we have basically, you know, you, you go from, from the ground up, it's major unemployment rate and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you clean up all the excess and imbalances you have such that the next generation has a better opportunity. It, it doesn't mean necessarily they will, they will you know, deal better uh, with this than the former generation did, but they have at least an opportunity to do so. Which elected official is credibly going to go for this? Nobody, because he is never going to be re-elected by the current generation. He's going to be extremely upset mm -hmm. about what just happened, right? So it, it just doesn't make sense. It's it's too much of a of a burden. The other way is to kick the can down the road, and kicking the can down the road, we are great at it. I mean, come on, uh, this generation yeah. maybe. Well, the wealth illusion effect would be a little bit less than the former generation, but who cares? They will still feel richer. So if mortgage rates today are 2%, in 10 years from now, they can be 1% or half a percent. So their house might be worth 25% more. They feel like it. And by the way, my, you know, my mandate at the Federal Reserve or my mandate at the, the Senate or the House will be over. So I don't care. Right. And I think this is the base case. I mean, obviously, it has to be the base case. We have been doing this for the last 50 years. We will probably continue doing that. Is there a breaking point? Coming back to your question. So is there a, a, a moment where all these asset classes start to trade completely convex? You know, you, you lose your linearity and it goes kaboom. I don't have a crystal ball, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But it's it's uh, there is one thing that worries me a lot, which is... Uh, Real interest rates, in order to drop, you need either nominal interest rates to continue to drop, even if inflation is very poor, or inflation you need inflation to, to be reasonably high. Now, if you look at America or Japan, they literally refuse so far to apply negative nominal interest rates. So that is quite a signal because it literally means, you know, we don't go below that with nominals. So we need inflation expectation to remain pretty decent. Otherwise, we literally can't lower real interest rates anymore. If you look at the real interest rates in Japan, they're not going down anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is also the reason why Japanese equities are not trailing, why Japanese house prices are not going through the roof anymore, etc., etc. Now, uh, that is quite a problem because if inflationary pressures cannot be sustained long-term, then you, know, you have this zero lower bound on nominal interest rates in America at least, and that might limit the capacity you have for lowering real interest rate. Central bank digital currency might be one way around it or not. I don't know yet, but it's something to, to watch because for this trend to continue, real interest rates need to slowly drop every year. And we are already at negative 1% in America for the next 10 years. So I'm not sure how much juice we can get out of this. Um, does it mean it has to collapse tomorrow? I'm not one of these guys that will say that the crisis is coming. I will repeat it every week until I'm right uh, over the next 50 years. I don't care about that. It's mm. not that person I am. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm asking you the tough ones here. <laughs> I, I, I don't, it's hard to know. Um, all right, Alfonso, this has been really great. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, subscribe to your newsletter. What's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, if you just Google or you put in your, uh, in your Google Chrome or whatever browser you're using, the macro compass, dot substack.com or if you just google the macro compass alfonso you will find me um and you can also follow me on twitter the handle is at macro alf uh, where you'll find some more insights as well together with the newsletter which gets published i think once or twice a week it's free no ads so you can just read it if you like awesome all right alfonso well this has been really interesting guys you should all subscribe uh, to the newsletter and thanks we'll have to do this again soon hey thanks michael all right talk to you soon